I don't see any visitors with little ones, so I will spare you the normal announcements. We have spent the last three messages speaking about very important subjects and very practical as far as the Christian life goes. Tears for the lost. I wonder how many of us, since hearing the message, have been on our faces before God, pleading with Him to give us such a heart. If you have not, my question to you is why not? God spoke to you, or He did not. If He did, the best place we can be is in submission to what he tells us. Secondly, we considered tears for God's glory, tears for his stained glory. Has any of us yet wept for the state of this apostate nation? You are seeing the death of a nation before your eyes. Does that bring anyone to tears? God's glory is being violated every moment of every day from the highest office to the lowest ones. Finally, we consider tears for our sins. I certainly cannot make any kind of airtight or ironclad case, but I do wonder uh, if we do not weep for the lost or weep for God's glory if it is because we do not weep for our crimes against our God. But pastor, that's all under the blood. <clears throat> all of our sins are washed away in the blood of Christ. There is no question about that. But those who have been born of God's spirit are in a living union with him. And they grieve when they know that they've sinned against him. Amen. Regardless of who else we may have sinned against. Every sin is against our most holy God. Those who have a new heart have some tenderness to that. Or they might truly be the Lord's people, but in such a hardened and backslidden, backslidden state, they may not truly know whether they are believers or not. So this morning, I would kind of like to cap those three messages with one of a slightly different theme, but I hope that this will be of use to all of us. Of use to all of us. All of us should come away from a sermon with at least one thing that God has impressed upon our hearts and that we want to Walk in that thing. So I hope there's at least one thing that speaks to your heart that you take seriously and with all of your might seek to honor Christ by living in it. So this morning we're going to talk about dangerous Christians. Dangerous Christians. <clears throat> 
If you would stand with me again, we're going to read Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Acts 17, verses 1 through 9. I don't know about you. I know we're all very different in the way the Lord ministers to us. And I don't usually use this particular word, but the most exciting book in the Bible to me is the book of Acts, where we see the eternal purpose of God being worked out in every page. God's eternal purpose in Christ. Now, I do pray that you will find great encouragement in what we read this morning. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Let us hear, let us give our attention to the living word of God. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, I can't say those two words. <laughs> one Jesus. Without my heart being stirred. There's another king, one Jesus. Let's unite our hearts in prayer. O oh, blessed Father in heaven, precious, wonderful, holy, lovely Christ, our Savior. The dear brothers and sisters we have lost this year, stand in thy presence 
They see thee in thy glory. And our hearts leap. If there is such a thing as a holy envy. Oh, they see thee unveiled. They see thee in splendor. Majesty. Thou art the radiant outshining of all the perfections of God. The holy angels see it. The saved citizens of heaven all see it. And they can't stand still. They must shout thy glories. Oh, what a heavenly, noisy place heaven must be. That so many hearts beat as one. So many lips praise as one. And all of it goes to the glory of him that loved us. And gave himself for us. Oh, to cross that last river. And to see thy beauty. We have that hope in this blessed book, Lord. Now, Lord Jesus, thou didst shed thy blood that thy people here and across the planet might gather throughout the day. And our hearts, one time zone after another, as this globe turns, send up that glorious gospel incense of prayer. And they sing to thee. And I trust they hear thee and are comforted and are built up in the faith and they are exhorted and in great waves of love obedient to thee. We have gathered, O Christ, that we might hear from thee. We want thy spirit to fill thy temple here today. And may the glory of God rest in and shed abroad his love in our hearts. May we all be spiritual Moseses whose faces shine from the glory of our resplendent and radiant God. Thou art light, O God, and in thee there is no darkness at all. Now here are thy eternally loved people, which thou feed them, which thou feed thy sheep. And I pray that thou wouldst get glory, glory, glory from our hearts to thee. We pray it in the name of our Savior. Amen. Amen. Please be seated.
Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, was a dangerous man. The word dangerous means someone or something likely to cause harm, injury, or trouble. We know that Paul was in danger throughout his ministry. He said, Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings. Often in perils. The word peril means dangers. In dangers of waters. In dangers of robbers, in dangers by my own countrymen, in dangers by the heathen, in dangers in the city, in dangers in the wilderness, in dangers in the sea, in dangers among false brethren. He lived in danger. But why was Paul dangerous? It was for the same reasons that he was in danger. Number one, he was committed to obey the Lord Jesus, whatever the cost. Do we hear that? He was committed to obey the precious Lord Jesus, whatever the cost. Speaking of Christ's commission to him, Paul said, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. I wonder if we are disobedient to the heavenly word. I hope it is not so. I hope that you rejoice in obeying the much-loved Savior. Secondly, Paul was dangerous Because he was committed to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to Jew and Gentile. Meaning, anyone and everyone. Committed. Paul testified to King Agrippa that he showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem. Jews. And throughout all the coast of Judea and then to the Gentiles. That they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. In other words, don't just talk Jesus. He preached a gospel that said, repent of your sins. Have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And go on repenting and live in a way that says, I've repented. 
Easy believism says, make a decision, walk the aisle, and everything's okay. Don't worry about it. That is a demonic lie. It's not what Christ ever preached or that Paul ever preached. He was committed to preach that gospel. Repent. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then live a life that free grace fuels. Paul testified to King Agrippa. And then he professed to others. I continue unto this day witnessing both the small and great, saying none other things than those things which the prophets and Moses did say should come. I'm preaching one thing. Jesus Christ. That's what I do. I preach Christ. I call men everywhere, Jew and Gentile, to repent of their sins and believe on the wonderful God-man, Jesus Christ, who died on Calvary's cross and rose again the third day. And he says, when I preach that, I'm not preaching anything you can't find from Genesis to Malachi. He's not talking about any New Testament scriptures. Number three, Paul was committed to speaking the truth of Christ in love. Now, that doesn't always mean that he sounded wimpy. What it means is that what always drove his heart was love for God and love for the souls of men. And sometimes that means even saying to those that you love dearly, like the Corinthians, all right, do you want me to come with a rod? That was love. And number four, Paul was dangerous because he was committed to advancing the kingdom of God from Scripture. What he preached, as we've already seen, was from the word of God. Paul didn't take from it. He didn't add to it. He was preaching the heart and soul of the old covenant scriptures when he preached the God-man crucified, the God-man resurrected, the God-man coming again. It's all there beautifully hidden under the types and shadows of the Old Testament scriptures. These things made Paul dangerous. Luke writes, he, the resurrected Christ, uh, uh, Paul, Paul, expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses, what? Gospel in Moses, the clanking chains of legalism and law? Yeah. Christ is all through the word of God. 
And may God spare us from theologies that cut the Old Testament out of the lives of God's people. He expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them. He went after their minds. He went after their hearts with the word of God. And that's what every preacher is called to do. Persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets. Listen, from morning until evening, he was all about it. Believing and obeying Jesus Christ made Paul dangerous. Let me repeat that. Believing and obeying Jesus Christ made Paul dangerous. In our text, he was counted among those that have turned the world upside down. Now, I don't know about you, but I want some of that. When you look at this country and go, it's really bad out there. There's one reason. Listen carefully. The pulpits. Now let us ask ourselves a question. Beginning right here behind the pulpit. Are we dangerous Christians? Are you a dangerous Christian? Now, I want to be as clear as possible. I do not mean dangerous because we bear guns. I don't mean dangerous because we have some explosives if we do. I don't. Except for maybe <laughs> the, gla the gasoline for my lawnmower that's out in the shed. I do not mean dangerous in any way with human weapons, whether they be uh, what we might call minor weapons or weapons of mass destruction. I am not talking about armies, tanks, and physical wars or physical harm to others. Whatever we may think about those matters, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about dangerous Christians who obey Jesus Christ and advance his kingdom, whatever the cost. Paul was dangerous. What about us? <clears throat> Our message then is entitled Dangerous Christians. May the God of grace and mercy pour out the power and the presence of his Holy Spirit. And may our hearts rage with love for Christ and engage with him in his word. For he is indeed the lover of our souls. He is our crucified and resurrected Lord. Everything about our lives should be 
out of love for him. So our first major thought then is this. Paul was dangerous in Thessalonica. We see it in the sacred text. Paul was dangerous. As we examine Paul's mission work in Thessalonica, we may see the glorious unfolding of God's eternal purpose and the believer's responsibility to our sovereign Lord. Number one, Paul had a mission. Paul had a mission. This sacred text describes an event during Paul's second missionary journey. Now, the text says, When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul, Timothy, and Silas were the group referred to here as they. They had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia. They traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia to Thessalonica along a main Roman highway. It was an east-west highway called the Ignatian Way. As they traveled, these faithful servants of Christ Jesus were on a sacred mission. They weren't on holiday or they weren't on vacation. There was holy urgency in their steps because they were serving Christ. The mission, that mission, as we see those men walking along the Roman highways, the Romans, the pagans didn't know when they were building those great highways in those days that there were going to be avenues for the gospel to make the rounds of the Mediterranean, the known world at that time. The Lord was just using his servants to make a road for them. So now they're walking on that journey. But the mission itself began in eternity. When God the Father commissioned his son to be the prophet, priest, and king of his eternally loved people. Jesus was the first heaven-sent missionary. He entered the world, born of a virgin, made under the law. Then the incarnate Son of God accomplished in a a three-and-a-half-year mission the redemption of his people through his crucifixion and resurrection. This is what God had planned before he said, let there be light. And every single missionary that has gone out since that time and until he returns are walking out the mission that began in eternity. Now, after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, our Savior... Our resurrected Christ commissioned his disciples on a mountain in Galilee. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. None of Paul's companions, nor Paul himself, were in Galilee for that commission. But they knew about it. 
Later, Jesus would appear to Paul on the road to Damascus. And said, I've appeared unto thee for this purpose. To make thee a minister and a witness. Both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee. Delivering thee from the people. That's the Jews. Which means he's going to be preaching to them. And there will be times when they don't like it. And from the Gentiles. He'll be preaching to Gentiles as well. And there will be times, as in our very text, that they won't like it. And Christ finishes by saying, unto whom I send thee. Jew and Gentile. Do we get the, the power of that? The living God is talking to one man and saying, I am sending you out. Here's what you're going to do. And here's how I'm going to work with you. That's incredible. That made him dangerous. He knew Christ. He knew that Christ had commanded him to take the message. Not to hide in a cave. Not to pretend like, ew, the world's so bad and ugly. Where's my cave I can hide in? There may be a time when we have to hide in a cave. But until that moment, it seems to me that we have a work to do. This very passage is extraordinary. Jesus went on to say, I'm sending you to them, listen, to open their eyes. And to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. That's why Paul can say, I'm going to tell the truth of God in love. Not as a cream puff. But as a soldier in the army of the living God. To tell them. There is a God who reigns in heaven and earth. He sent his son into this world to save his people from their sins. He saves all those who repent of their sins and believes on him. And then he'd have to brace himself for the stones they were going to throw at him. Or whatever they were going to do. To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light. To turn them from the power of Satan. What does that tell you about the world? You shouldn't be surprised by anything you see by those who don't profess to be Christians. They're under the power of Satan and the armies of devils. The Lord Jesus says to Paul, I'm going to send you with something that's going to set people free from Satan's grip. That's dangerous in this world. Satan doesn't roll over and play dead when somebody's converted. And any genuine convert will tell you. Tell them about Christ. Tell them about the inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. 
This is a salvation, all of grace, all of Christ. And our part, it's faith. To believe him, trust him. And a faith that believes is a faith that obeys. No one's saved by obeying. They obey because they're saved. So as we'll see, Christ's personal commission to Paul made him a dangerous Christian. And what is the lesson here? What's the lesson? Well, first, it's this. Dangerous Christians will go to the lost with the gospel. Now, I hasten to add, we are all in different stations in life. This is true. We're not all called to be apostles. But the heart of those that have been made new get very uncomfortable at the thought of their neighbors, their family, and the world on its way to hell. And they do, wherever their station is, whatever they're doing, want to make sure that those in front of them and connected to them know about Christ. It's really amazing when I preach on these kinds of things. Do you know who I hear from first? And this has been almost 100%. There may have been back there somewhere an exception. But do you know who I hear from first? The women. How about that? I hear from the women first. They'll say, I, I would love to. I would love to go do this. I'd love to pass out tracts. I'd, I'd actually love to go with my husband when he preaches on the campus. I would love to do this. I, I would love to do that. I said, do you have children at the house? Yeah. You have a mission field. Now treat that mission field the way Paul treated his. I don't want you feeling guilty. I want you to minister where the Lord's put you. But Paul sets the stage and Paul sets the model for people that are born of God's spirit. They're dangerous. They can't rest knowing that there are those that they know and love and even strangers that are on their way to the eternal flames of hell. Paul had a mission and dangerous Christians do too. It's to go to the lost whatever station or place the Lord has put them, in what ways that they are able to speak of Christ. Number two, Paul had a method. Verse two. Verse two says, And Paul, as his manner was, he had a method. He had a plan. And he followed it. He had a mission. And then he thought about a way to carry out That mission. That's what each one of us has a responsibility to do. In our station. When it came to the Jews, Paul had a very clear method. When he entered a city, he would find and enter its synagogue. Then he would reason with the Jews from the scriptures. Having been a Pharisee himself, he knew the scriptures. Now He saw that all those scriptures were about Christ. 
Jesus the Christ. And so he used every opportunity. When he'd go to a new city, he'd find them. He didn't go into the middle of the Colosseum and scream at everybody. But he would go where those Jews were gathered. And he'd talk to them about Christ. How would that look for us? Paul had a method. That's why he was dangerous. He was methodical. And he didn't move from his method. Not for the Jews. Now, the Gentiles, it is true. He had, to, he had to deal with the Gentiles in a little bit different way each time he encountered them. But he never changed his message. Paul had a slightly different method for Gentiles. I wish we had time to look at all of that. Because they had no synagogues. They were the world. <laughs> so whenever he was in a city, he would do what he could to meet and talk with them. He'd even go find, oh, where are the guys that like to sit around and talk about weighty and heavy things like philosophy? Where are they? Mars Hill. Let's go. Number three, Paul was dangerous because he had a message. <laughs> he didn't just show up. Hi, y'all. I'm Paul. No, he had a message. He had a mission. He had a method. And he carried out that method to bring his message. Paul's method and message were opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. When Paul had the Jews' attention, he would explain and prove from the Old Testament scriptures that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and then to rise again from the dead. Why was that his message? Because the Jews didn't understand their own scriptures and they took the parts where the so-called Messiah was supposed to come and looked at the glories of that kingdom that was coming and all they could think of was a conquering king. A guy being arrested and put to death as a criminal didn't sound attractive to them. Right? The heart of Paul's mission was preaching the gospel from the Old Testament scriptures and applying it to the hearts of those who listened. <clears throat> Once he explained and demonstrated from scripture that the Christ must suffer and rise again, Paul would then declare that this Jesus whom I preach to you is Christ. You see his method? There's part of his method right there in what he's saying. He's saying, all right, let's unscroll, let's unroll our scrolls and let's take a look at some of the things here in Scripture. They weren't carrying leather-bound Bibles. No such thing at that point. Right? He would go into those synagogues. There would be Scripture scrolls. He himself, it tells us in Luke, even from the time he was young, would go into the synagogues and un unwrap them, unroll them. And then he would pick apart and say things like, today... This has been fulfilled in your ears. Wow. I tell you, this is thrilling. But you see, he would take that and he would point out what was true of Messiah. And after he had showed them in their own scriptures, he would then say, and that Messiah that I'm talking to you about is Jesus Christ. Jesus. 
It was necessary for him to die. It was necessary for him to rise again and conquer death. I love that. <laughs> this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. I tell you what, for the Jewish ears, that was shocking language. This Christ, this Jesus fellow, died a miserable, hateful, infamous death on a cross. That was for the lowest, scummy people on the planet. And that's exactly how it was intended. That's what Jesus died for. If you're not a sinner here today, talk about Christ is completely useless. But if you understand that you are lost and under the judgment of God right now in your unbelief, the thought of a Savior by whom you may have all your sins forgiven, your guilt and your record in heaven washed clean. That's good news. Amen. <laughs> That's good news. Amen. So, that is precisely what Jesus had taught the 11 disciples following his, direction, uh, following his resurrection. He said, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that's what every one of us needs. You and I should be praying that every time we gather. Oh Christ, send your spirit and open my understanding. I'm here for you to teach me. He said unto them, thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ. It was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Man, these are words of life. Are you hearing them? Jesus, the God-man, died on Calvary's cross. He had to die. Why? God cannot and will not forgive you if you die in your sins. And the penalty for your sins must be paid. It must be paid. Oh, listen. Whether it's whispered, look to Jesus. Or whether it sounds like an insane man in a house on fire going, believe, believe, believe on Christ. Stop resisting the truth. However it's delivered, it's true. And God is speaking. What had begun at Jerusalem was now on its way to Thessalonica. Those truths, those wonderful, glorious, never-changing truths. Paul was obediently following the teaching and will of his Lord. Now, what was the result of this? What was the result of his preaching the word like he did here 
in this blessed passage in Thessalonica. Well, there's an astonishing contrast. There were two responses. There were two responses. We'll look at those in some detail. But let me say at this particular point, what's the lesson? What do we get from this? Well, dangerous Christians have a message. It comes directly from Christ, about Christ, for Christ. Dangerous Christians have a mission. Dangerous Christians should have a method. And dangerous Christians have a message. It's the only one authorized by heaven by which immortal souls may be saved. So, that wonderful message is the gospel, the power of God unto salvation. It's not to be dallied with. It's not to be made relevant. It's always relevant to lost souls. We don't need to dress it up like a puppet and a doll to try to get the world's attention. Fourthly, Paul received a blessed response. Verse 4, some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas and of the devout Greeks. Listen, a great multitude. That means a lot of people. A great multitude of Gentiles. And of the chief women, not a few. Now, it turns out, at least history tells us this, chief women were generally the wives of very prominent and wealthy men. And they were very often attracted to the Jews and their religion and, and very often were very big givers to those synagogues. Oh, no. Dangerous Christians dally with people's money. That makes them dangerous too. Wait, these wealthy women are being drawn to this doctrine of Christ? Uh-oh. Big problems. Wait, some of our very prominent men are beginning to listen to this stuff? Hey, we got a problem here. Paul explained and showed them what the scripture said about Christ and they received it. Praise the Lord. Amen. Their hearts and minds were persuaded. You hear that? They weren't just sitting in their pews emoting. They were listening and they were thinking about this heavenly data and they were persuaded that it was true. They were persuaded. That's wonderful. They were persuaded that Christ came into the world. They were persuaded that he suffered on Calvary's cross. They were persuaded that he died in agony and rose again from the dead in astonishing life. They were persuaded to repent of their sin. Boy, that's the hard part. You can get people to nod their heads about a Jesus that you dangle in front of them. But when you tell them you need to repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they want to hear that because they like their lives. They like their sins. 
It's only when someone has come to a real understanding of who and what they are before God that they will repent. And they will. So, they believed Paul's message. They were persuaded and they believed him. But notice the words consorted with Paul and Silas. That's very important. There in verse 4. They believed, they were persuaded, but then they were consorted with Paul and Silas. It's really easy to read right over that and see how important it is. These believers began to associate with the men who had preached Christ to them. They didn't just stand on the street and go, all right, let Jesus come into your heart. I did. Okay, good. Praise the Lord. Got a notch on my belt. Another one. Wasn't any of that going on. It was a clear understandable message especially when empowered by the Holy Spirit and sinners came to see that they were sinners lost and that they needed forgiveness and they changed their minds about the sins that they loved and that would damn them and drag them to hell like a thousand anvils tied around your neck there was no easy believers in, in the preaching of the apostles. I'm not trying to preach hard believism either. I'm trying to preach biblical believing. Well, these believers began to associate with the men that preached to them. They began a church in Thessalonica. That's the idea of what's going on here. And we know that Paul later wrote to the Thessalonians. Do we understand, and generally in our individual worship given to us by our culture, my individualism, me, I'm me. Everyone needs to get out of the way and let me just be me. I've got to find myself. <laughs> Where have you been? All right. Well, no, there isn't any of that here. What do we see when it's over? It isn't just, oh, I've got my salvation now and so I can go on into my life. That's never here. People are added to the church of Jesus Christ and they walk in those churches as Jesus Christ teaches them. The Lord does not save a sinner and throw him out to be a maverick. Beware of mavericks in the kingdom. They consorted with Paul. They wanted to be with him. He had told them the truth. And Christ had saved their souls. And they wanted to be around other people who were believing the same thing. If you have no use for the church, you don't know Christ. Well, American churches are in bad shape. Mm -hmm. But they're still Christ's churches. At least some of them. But they sure need to hear God's word in our day and understand Jesus didn't call us to a square dancing party. Whatever you think about square dancing. He didn't call us to that. He called us to a body. And by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit, he regenerates us and then puts us into the body, baptizes us into the body of Christ. And that's why we love the body. 
It's people that have experienced the same salvation in Christ as we. These guys wanted to be with Paul and with Silas. The miracle of the new birth, brethren, unites us to Christ, to his people. Converted people want to associate, listen, especially young converts. Converted people want to be with converted people. A sign of new life is not only love for Christ, but love for his people. So the text says, some of them believed. And it means that some of the Jews believed that Jesus was indeed their crucified and resurrected Lord and Savior. Likewise, of the devout Greeks, a great multitude. See, this is the beginning of all the problems we see later on in the letters that Paul writes. Jews and Gentiles being brought together in one body. That's exactly what God purposed. And he wants them in there frictionalizing with each other so that they all grow up and learn how to live with his people and love them. Of the chief women, not a few. Do you see the social strata that, that the power of God's spirit works in? The Jews, the Gentiles, and even the Wealthy Gentile women. That's a remarkable mention. Could have just said people, right? Well, here we see Christ uniting Jews and Gentiles into that blessed body that we call a church. What's the lesson here? Dangerous Christians, Christians declare the gospel to the lost. And some of them are saved. And when people are saved, everything around them begins to change. Everything. They're not perfect ever in this life. But things begin to change. Dangerous Christians declare the gospel to the lost and some of the lost are saved. Praise the Lord. Well, number five, Paul proved himself dangerous. Oh, in verses five through eight, he really proves himself dangerous here. Paul's method did not bear the same fruit in every heart. We're thrilled on one hand to hear about the Jews that believed and, and uh, the Greeks that believed and the, 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 the women. But not everybody believed. The text declares, but the Jews which believed not. The Jews which believed not moved with envy. Hmm. In the darkened hearts of some, the blessed message of Christ crucified and Christ's resurrection, uh, Christ resurrected, neither brings joy nor comfort. In fact, the unbelieving Jews... In the unbelieving Jews, Paul's message bore the hideous and bitter fruit of envious, murderous rage. The same envy that killed our Savior. 
the same darkness that filled the heart of Christ's persecutors. Wise Solomon said that envy is rottenness of the bones. And he asked, who is able to stand before envy? It's pretty bold for the Holy Spirit to say, isn't he? Isn't it? Who can stand before envy? Stephen the martyr reminded his Jewish persecutors, his brethren, the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt. Even pagan Pontius Pilate understood why the Jews wanted Jesus crucified. He knew, says the sacred and infallible text, that for envy they had delivered him. Even Pilate could discern it. Oh, envy is a cancer of the soul. Envy is a spiritual toxin that destroys relationships, ministries, and congregations. Envy envy can drive a soul to ruin someone else's reputation. Envy can drive a soul to murder. Have it in the scriptures. We may rightly say on one hand, God the Father nailed Jesus to the cross as the sin-bearing substitute for believers. That's absolutely true. On the other hand, at a certain, with a certain aspect, we can say that envy nailed Jesus to the cross. Envy. So the unbelieving Jews whose hearts, their darkened hearts were full of envy, knew that they were losing power. They, lose, they knew that they were losing influence. And as we shall see, they knew that they might lose money. Oh, my friends, <laughs> you want to find out what those that aren't Christians think of you really? Just do something that costs them money. And you'll find out in a second who's their, who their God is. Even if they're deacons at your church. Uh, elders at your church. Not going after our deacons. We're okay, right? Okay. Good. So. Brethren, all that they could see in Paul was a dangerous man. Do you get it? They looked at him. He was dangerous. This is a dangerous guy. Because he's got dangerous ideas. Ideas have consequences. What you believe matters. So, they saw a dangerous man. They saw a dangerous Christian. And they saw a dangerous doctrine. So what does the sacred text then say? The unbelieving Jews took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort and gathered a company and set all, y'all hear the word? All the city on an uproar. Thessalonica was a big city in those days. It was a big port city. Lots of gods and goddesses. It was a big time 
devilish place. And this guy has come into our city with these dangerous ideas. And we're feeling it. We're watching people believe him. Listen to what they did. Not only did they take certain lewd fellows of a baser sort and gathered a company. That means a mob. They made a mob. Seen any mobs in the last couple of years? See them all the time. And very often they are the baser sort. Quite sad to say. Mobs. Here's a mob. And he's, they, they, stir, they stir up the mob. And it sets all the city on an uproar. And so they assaulted the house of Jason. That's where Paul and his companions were staying. They assaulted that house. Get him. And they sought to bring them out to the people. Has anybody imagined they were going to bring him out so he could pray with them? What were they going to do? They were going to drag him out to the angry mob and let the angry mob deal with them. They weren't there. The text makes clear they weren't there. They had to take it out on somebody. They grabbed Jason and they dragged him out and dragged him down to the local government. Would you hate something and you're Satan's minion? There's almost nothing you will stop at when you're angry. So, in their envy of Paul and the hatred of his message, these fine, upstanding religious Jews stirred up the entire city. Does that sound familiar? Think of Jerusalem during Passover when our precious Savior was there. The unbelieving Jews turned the whole festival against our Master. They were going to drag Paul and his companions to these crowds, but that didn't work, so they dragged Jason to the civil magistrates. And then the dreadful accusations began. They didn't just dump them off. They had to accuse them of something. What did they say? These that have turned the world upside down are come here also. They've come here. They're dangerous. Listen, magistrates, do you know what's going on? We want to inform you. These guys who are going all over the empire and overturning things, They've turned the world upside down. How could they do that? Because the Holy Spirit really does change people. Religion in and of itself changes no one. But the Holy Spirit can give a man a new heart and make him a new creature and make him to love that which is holy and pure and just and good. But worldlings can be stirred up with any fad that's going around. 
They can be stirred up with any wind of doctrine, doctrine that blows through Jesus' church. They'll turn on each other. They'll turn on the elders. It's very sad. But when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of somebody, they have the potential to turn the world upside down. Every believer can be a world upender. Everyone. Why? Because you have the same spirit Paul did. You're a new creature just as much as he is. There are no regenerate people that are useless. None. There are no useless people in a congregation if they're born of God's spirit. Because the spirit has given them gifts and has brought them among other people so that they can begin to flourish as a believer and that they can all learn the things of Christ and walk together. It's not our Sunday entertainment. It's not our, uh, our Sunday, oh, put my business card in, get checked out. I did my religion today. Now let's go do something important. Uh, we're leaving here today because uh, we've got to do something really important. It just happens all the time. But the Lord's people want to be with the Lord's people. And they want to worship with them. They want to worship the Christ who has, been, who has saved their souls. They, there's something that's happened to them. It is a miracle. It's called being born again. We don't have a switch that turns that on or turns it off. That is the glorious work of God's Spirit. That's something else we ought to be praying about every Lord's Day. O Spirit of life, move in our congregation. There's more than one person here who believed that for many years he was a good old American Christian and then found out he was lost as he could be. Who told him that? The Spirit of God and the Word of God. But they didn't stop with these particular accusations. They had a bigger one. They had a bigger club in the bag. They had a bigger gun to fire off before it was all over. All right, government, listen. These guys, they are ravaging the world. They're turning stuff upside down. Every place that they go, it affects individuals. It affects businesses. It affects all of society. Yeah, that's what we want. The Lord said, that's why I sent my son into the cesspool. To turn this world upside down. The next big club they pulled out was these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Saying that there is another king. One Jesus. That's it. That, that nailed it down. <laughs> That's the thing they used against Jesus. King of the Jews. That's right. I mean, the first gospel track was the sign over Jesus' head. This is Jesus. 
the king of the Jews. That's exactly right. As he hung, paying the sins for his people. Wow. You see, the Lord's about saving souls. He's about saving sinners. But it's not a game. I don't ever come into the kingdom because I sign a card, raise my hand in a meeting. I come when the Holy Spirit opens my heart. There's another king. If there is one thing politicians and rulers cannot stand, it's another ruler taking over some of their turf. My friends, the lordship of Christ, the lordship of Jesus Christ, there are waves of denominations today when they so-called preach Christ won't mention that he's the Lord. Somehow in their minds, they think there's something legalistic about that. No, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That means someone who's going to rule your life. You can't say, oh, you know what? Hey, man, I'll let you save me, but I got things to do in my life. I'm going to go ahead and do them. All right. Good. Thanks a lot. I appreciate that. That's the way a lot of people live. They wouldn't say it that way. They wouldn't put it that crassly. But I am telling you, just look at American churches. If you can. And we cannot set ourselves up above everybody else, y'all. Can we weep for the lost? Can we weep that our God is dishonored every day? Can we weep that even though we know and see the glories of Christ's cross, we still sin? We need to be dangerous. That's it. That's what turns the world upside down. Dangerous Christians. Not with a gun. Not with a bomb. Not with a tank. But with the sword of the Spirit. But with the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. Oh, another king. Another king. That's the nail, so to speak, in the coffin. For Paul, that's all they need to do is just say, look, you know what this guy's doing? He's a political problem. Oh, that's the way you take care of some people that you don't want around. Anybody listening to the news? Anybody listening to some of the highest voices in our country? Christians are the problem. They're behind all of this. They're all white supremacists. They're nationalists. Does anybody remember Germany and Jews? No, many of us are just so completely tied up with what's going on in my life. We don't know what's going on in this world. Satan counts on that. But a room full of people who are tuned to the Spirit of God, to the Word of God, to the Son of God, and who are walking faithfully with Him begin to see and sense things. It's just the fact. Ah. 
Well, all, what, what, what's the lesson here? With Paul, Paul has preached and now he's been accused. Thankfully, he wasn't there at Jason's house, but poor Jason got dragged down to the civil magistrate and they said, these guys that turned the world upside down, they're here in our city. You know what? This guy put them up. They were going for everybody. Because the world hates Christ. The religions of the world hate Christ. Amen. The people of the world hate Christ. Unless he opens their heart. There's another king. It's Jesus. That's right. Their enemies got it right. They didn't realize it. But they said, you know what these people are preaching? That you're supposed to like live under that king. That's right. That's what salvation is. Is it not? All my sins are washed away in the blood of Christ. And he becomes my glorious and gracious head. Well, I need to stop. But let me just say this. If you will read the book of Acts carefully, you will find that all these things that I've mentioned, Paul continues to do. He just keeps going. Why was he dangerous? Because he kept obeying Christ. He kept preaching the gospel. He kept telling people the good news. Why? Why? Because he loved Christ. He did it in love. He loved men's souls. I love the souls of the people in this place. I love the people that live in my neighborhood. I love their souls. I don't love all the stuff they do. But they're God's image bearers. Who do you love? If it's just your children, you've got tunnel vision. There's a world out here. <clears throat> yes, love your children, of course. But if you will look at Paul in Acts 13, Acts 14, Acts 15, Acts 16, and then go on after chapter 17, you will see him every place he goes. He stirs up trouble. Every place he goes. And he doesn't go into the city to be troublous. He goes in with love for the hearts of men and women because he knows what Christ did for him and what Christ commanded him. Now, do you and I know what Christ did for us? And do you know what he's commanded us to do? Maybe we're not dangerous. We need to be dangerous. Dangerous. Because we love men's souls. I, I finish with these applications. We've already covered them. Number one, dangerous Christians have a mission. Number two, dangerous Christians have a method. Number three, dangerous Christians have a message. Number four, dangerous Christians declare the gospel to the lost and some of the lost are saved. That's why they're doing it. And finally, dangerous Christians will always be in danger. I wish we could have teased that out a little bit more. I had some other examples. But the fact of the matter is spiritually and politically, all you have to do is preach the gospel, live according to God's word, and sooner or later, you will run aground of somebody's religion. 
somebody's personal worship, somebody's thing. The bosses where you work will tell you, all right, uh, this happened. I want you to put this on the report. And you'll have to say, I can't do that. Why not? Because that would be a lie. And I've got to follow the Lord Jesus, who is the truth. Here's your pink slip. See ya. It's okay. God's people were made to suffer. You will face tribulation if you want to live holy lives. It is inescapable. You don't have to go looking for trouble. Just live according to the word of God. And it won't be long before you see it. I urge us all to consider Paul. We're not apostles, I understand. We've got mothers with five, ten more children. I understand all that. I don't want you to have a guilt complex because you've got a small nation in front of you. But witness to them. Let's be dangerous for the glory of God. Amen. My Father in heaven, you've put us in an ugly world, but it doesn't have to be. It's glorious when the light of Jesus Christ shines forth in the hearts of his people. Father, a lot of us have just gotten too comfortable and our sensibilities have gone to sleep with cultural anesthetic. Help us wake up thy churches everywhere. Wake up thy churches everywhere. Lord, not, not to take up guns and bombs and tanks, but to raise up the spirit of God's glorious word to preach, to teach, to speak of Christ as we can, where we can, where we can, as we are able. Make us dangerous for thy everlasting glory. Because I know, O righteous Father, the dangerous Christians change the world forever. May it be to thy glory and to the good of thy people. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, we're going to have baptism, and the, uh, the deacons and others are going to straighten the room up for that wonderful moment, and we're going to go change, and we'll be back very shortly.